we were chatting about what we wanted to do in the wine industry. And essentially, the idea was that we didn't need another bottle of Pinot Noir. And we said, well, why don't we do sparkling wine? And that was honestly it. We didn't know what we were doing. Nobody had done it before. And we got really lucky. Welcome to the Steven Satterfield Show, part of Whetstone Radio Collective. Hello, welcome back to the Steven Satterfield Show. Today, we are talking to one of my favorite winemakers in the world, Michael Cruz of Cruz Wine Co. And that is a name that rings loud in the streets for wine lovers, especially for wine lovers who love exquisite sparkling wines. He is, in fact, the maker of one of the most coveted and heralded sparkling wines in the U.S., one that you actually have to be on a wait list to drink. That is the Ultramarine. We talk a little bit about that. There's also other gems in the episode that are not wine-related. For instance, Michael talks about what it takes to run an enduring business year after year after year. He talks about bringing his own creativity into entrepreneurship. And we also discuss the rise of celebrity culture in wine and his outlook on the future of the industry. That is all coming up right now on the Stephen Satterfield Show with one of my favorite winemakers, Michael Cruz. Michael Cruz, I'm so excited to be talking to you today. The first one of your wines I ever had was your champagne-inspired sparkling wine called Ultramarine. That wine, among sommeliers, really became kind of its own phenomenon. So can you just speak a little bit to the origins of that wine? So the shortest possible story, I'd say, was that me and two partners, Ryan Bradley, who I was in a tasting group with, and Graham Waymeyer, who's now the winemaker at Diamond Creek, were sitting around my table and, and we were chatting about what we wanted to do in the wine industry. And essentially, the idea was that we didn't need another bottle of Pinot Noir. I think we were drinking like Le Mondier or something like that. And we said, well, why don't we do sparkling wine? And that was honestly it. We didn't know what we were doing. Nobody had done it before. So the first two vintages we kind of made on our back porch just off of test wine, just an extra five gallons here or there. And then our first vintage was 2010, and we had just put in sort of an amazing amount of time and effort trying to figure out how to do it. And we got really lucky. We started working with Charlie Heinz, and his vineyard turned out to be really good for sparkling. I think it's sort of had a kind of a mind of its own since then. I think the wine's really good, but I think the sort of popularity of that wine is, I don't want to say it has nothing to do with me. I mean, it's time and place more than almost anything else. You know what I mean? I don't take that for granted at all. Well, that is a special vineyard. I am interested in this as a practical matter for a winemaker. A lot of what you do is about site selection, especially in California. It fits within your thesis. You're also from Northern California, so you know the terrain. Can you talk a little bit about how you select a site is it something that usually over the course of years, you stake out a relationship? What the logistics are from an operational perspective of having to manage multiple sites? Yeah. Winemaking, for people that kind of don't know, winemaking is a, a craft field like carpentry or something like that. You 
apprentice, you're interning, you're taking on junior roles, you're doing that for years and years and years. I would say only recently has it been the case that people can just start making wine with little experience. That really is a relatively new concept. And it used to be the case, not to sound like old man Cruz, but it used to be the case that it would be at five minimum, 10 years, probably more reasonably before you started doing your own wine. And in that period of time, you sort of naturally come across sites that are engaging to you, you know what I mean? Or that you want to work with in the future or feel like maybe aren't being better represented. Then you start sort of taking on word of mouth things, meeting new people, sort of trying them out. I mean, that's something I do all the time is I'll try a new vineyard out for a year or something like that and then see if it matches the style, see if there's modifications that we can do. We only work with organic vineyards now at a minimum. So then that sort of changes the work. In France, you have a model where you have a farmer and the farmer makes the wine. And even if they're selling it to a co-op or a, you know, a negociant or something like that, they're still making the wine themselves. That doesn't really exist in California, kind of because of how the industry sort of grew up. You sort of have a farmer and then a winemaker and the farmer sells the grapes and that goes to a winemaker. Obviously, that's not entirely the case now, but that's the model that's existed since, I don't know, the 18, late 1800s. So we're just kind of following that California model. And then it becomes a sort of, you know, a lot of spreadsheets, a lot of driving around. It's not particularly fancy and kind of checking to make sure that everything's copacetic. Yeah, it's funny. I thought literally like it's probably just a lot of time in the car. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, just going to check on the, the fruit. Yeah. You said something that registered with me that back in the day, you would have to spend five to 10 years kind of putting in your time, earning your stripes. The barrier to entry, as with so many things now, is lower than ever. I wonder how you feel about that as a consumer, as a wine lover, what the read is on all the new entrants. I mean, it's funny because I think like a lot of hierarchical systems and apprentice-based systems, I'm not convinced that that's always the best model when you can get books or have the internet or whatever and get all that knowledge in six months time, let's say, right? Instead of 10 years. That being said, I do think it's a difference between like somebody would say to us back in the day, there's a very big difference between reading about something and doing something. The thing that I would say is this, I don't know that anybody needs to be a intern for like eight harvests before they get a full-time job. Like that's crazy. Or unless they want to, I don't want to judge that, but I think it's good to work for companies sometimes. It helps you learn how to be a boss. And that could be a good thing or a bad thing. It could be like, I don't ever want to be this way. Or maybe how they treated their people actually was something that I want to ascribe to do. Mentorship comes in all sorts of different forms. And I think if you're going to be a mature business and you're going to have employees and you're supposed to take care of your employees, it would be nice if you worked at a place where people did take care of their employees and you kind of learned how to be a good manager. The one thing I give advice to people on, and I really try to refrain from giving any advice about anything <laughs> in terms of winemaking, but one thing I do always think is like, if it doesn't work as a business, then just keep it as a hobby and don't make it a business. You making 200 cases without a plan to get to those 200 cases taking care of you and your family, then maybe do something else. And I think that's the thing where that can be a hard 
pill to swallow when it's your passion. And I'm not here to rain on anybody's parade, but I do think that like spending that extra bit of time, learning a little bit more about the business, learning how to be a good manager and a good leader, that's all it is. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Totally. Still having standards around excellence, all to scale with integrity is really hard, both on the kind of core product side, as well as the like ethics of it all. I've just seen, you know, as I travel around the country in all kinds of spots, I'm like, look at Michael Cruz and the cuts, <laughs> you know? So how have you managed your growth over this last decade without losing your integrity? Man, I don't know. It's funny because I think that one of the things that I think about all the time, for us, it was always necessary for us to grow because my ambitions were always to say something about what we were doing from day one, if that makes sense. I realized that if I didn't have this sort of mythical number in terms of sales, which I'm not exactly there yet, to be totally fair, and that's just because winemaking is a very slow process. So even though we've grown basically every year, we're still not really at the right number, I guess. But that notwithstanding, I think I had that goal in my head so strongly. So everything that we did was around that. And something that's sort of weird to me that I've only now sort of realized is that what has gotten easier has actually been the quality part. Because as you learn a little bit more, as you get your team a little bit tighter, actually, the money part's still hard. <laughs> the, the paying your bills part is still hard. All that stuff still sucks. Totally. But I feel like the set of wines that we're doing now might be the best wines we've made ever. And I think that that has nothing to do with me. That has to do with having the team, having the equipment. And that's what's been the easier part. And I think that that's having those sort of very simplified goals means that if my business plan isn't directly written out for this year, those goals are still the motivating parts to how I sort of run things. Right. So basically, it's like you have set a number. Yeah. And you don't really necessarily get in the weeds or able to avoid getting in the weeds, even as you grow. But what you never lose sight of is like the big goal, which is like the number. Yeah, exactly. I'm a big believer in goals. You know, it's very corny, but the truth is most of the stuff that I've set goals for in my life, I've actually done that. But I'm really bad with checklists and to-do lists, for instance, you know? So there is a little bit of tension there. The kind of daily journey on the way is a disorienting experience for me. I think it's really interesting. I feel like I'm slightly more monastic about how I go about things. And I think this is kind of from like my background in science and how people do research. But like, I was always of the mindset where I need to stare at the sun for a little bit, like, and sort of like wipe whatever I got going on and then lock me in a room and I could do the same thing for honestly 30 some odd hours. You know what I mean? Like I can thrive off of checklists. What I am bad about, I say this only for entrepreneurs listening to this because this is really important. But there are going to be things that you do not want to do. There's going to be some tax filing or some permitting or something that the most bleeding heart liberal is going to complain about something at some point in their business journey 
about some regulation or something else, right? And early on, I just tried to avoid those as much as possible. And now those are like the first things that I do. There's a maturity in that because I hate doing that so much and I want to do this other thing. I'll just put that as a road stop in front of any work that I can do otherwise that I want to get to. I'll put that stuff ahead of it or I'll outsource it or have somebody else deal with it or whatever it is. But I won't let that be an albatross around my neck like I used to let it be. I do think that at the end of the day, I want to be left alone. I want to stay on one task. And I think that that's one thing about winemaking that actually does fit my personality really well. Yeah, man. One question I want to ask you, and this is kind of related to all of the new entrants in the business, Mm. but you know, it's a very modern way to run a company, especially after COVID, so-called dropship companies where you can scale up an e-commerce product and brand around pretty much anything, it seems now, without ever having to touch anything. People are now kind of able to spin up a wine club or some kind of D2C wine things. What do you think about these companies who are now wine brands that don't have to touch anything? And is there a larger commentary there for you about the implications of that for the industry? Okay, so here's what I'll say. I think that I've said this from the beginning is that a rising tide lifts all boats when it comes to wine. Wine is a controlled substance. We have to be honest about that, right? It is. It's a drug. Like tell the kids, daddy makes fancy drugs for people. The point being is that how you come to that, if you at some point get the chance to taste my wine and you like it, that's all I care about, really. If that means that the first time you taste my wine is through a new wine club, most of the time I've found those to be not particularly effective as repurchases. You're just sort of introducing people to like random wine. So I don't dislike it, but I don't want to say I particularly care about it. Like I'm a slow and steady guy. I don't need to like bulk sell my my wine to hit a target price point or something like that. I don't know. It's sort of insulting to whatever this this game is. Is the celebrity stuff bumps me out a little bit. Do you know what I mean? Totally. Because I don't get it. I should say this. There are celebrities, most of them are minor celebrities, who are like really into their wine production. Like Pink is really into her thing. Not that Pink is minor. Natalie Coughlin, who's a former swimmer, Olympian swimmer, she's like really into her project. So like no shade to that. That's not really what I'm talking about. But I think that like the idea that because somebody has their name attached to it and they're getting bulk wine and all that stuff, that kind of bones me out. I don't want to tell anybody to not do this. Do you know what I mean? If they have a way of doing it, like that's great. The cool part about wine that I would say to people that maybe folks don't necessarily understand is that unlike Coke or something like that, you're buying a beverage of time and place. Mm -hmm. That's the good part. (laughs) The price is kind of the bummer part, but the good part is that you're, you're buying a moment in time and a very particular place. That seems to me far more interesting than whatever celebrity is involved in that process. You know what I mean? Yeah. Ideally, at least it's very true. I have a whole theory right now that we're going to return to like a 1990s style, A-lister, worshipful celebrity culture. Mm. I feel like a lot of the biggest celebs are really annoyed 
that all of these <laughs> social media celebs are like that's so funny coming for their spot. So I think we're gonna live through the like revenge celeb era. And it's really wrecking a lot of industries though, because before this whole influencer thing got out of control, some people became influential because they were from the trade or like brought some kind of authority around the subject matter. But now that people scale up their accounts just so they can unbox gifts and stuff like that. So now that celebs, I believe, have evaluated what's happening all around them, they're like, you know what? We want our spot back. And so they're like, now we do mezcal. Now we do wine. You know, they're kind of bogarting their way into every single industry, even like this Mr. Beast guy. I don't know if you know Mr. Beast. Yeah, I do. He's like the new Ray Kroc over here. Also, probably doesn't hurt watching George Clooney make like a billion dollars or whatever the hell. So there's also that too, but I think that this is gonna be a thing that a lot of us in a lot of different industries are gonna be looking to our left and right. Like, what is this A-lister doing? Like schlepping this artisanal thing. I won't blow up anybody's spot, but I was listening to a, I think a legitimate A-lister talk about the wine industry. Hmm. And he was talking about how he wanted to develop it into like a billion dollar thing. And I was like, I think that what you need to do is you need to go on Google and find a winery worth a billion dollars. Yeah. I'm not saying there's none, but like you would be like, what's treasury's value? I don't think it's a billion. So then if that's not the case, then what do you think you're going to be doing by adding your name? I guess the funny part to me, this is, not exactly what you're saying, but I'm thinking about this, like in terms of like the whole AI conversation and things like that, about how technology has just like impregnated our lives in such a like intense way. My hope is, is that for the folks that are crafting things with their hands and doing things that are not touchable by technology in any kind of grand sense, but the idea of something that is created by a person with hands and you know, pumps and stuff. I hope that that's a draw that will have some type of arts and craft play long term. I mean, look at Whetstone and the articles that you have and, and what is the draw for people in that? Do you know what I mean? It's about culture and it's about humanity. And I think that that's the thing that I I have hopes for for the next, I don't know, 50 some odd years of, of this, that that's something that people will care a lot more about. Yeah, man, I appreciate your optimism. I also think you're right. <laughs> I think that I'm very impressed with Gen Z, I have to say. The youngsters, I know every generation says that people had high hopes for the millennials and we we are all right. We did all right. But yeah, I just don't see how you can grow up with this level of technology and not yearn for something else at some point, you know, just to touch grass. A hundred percent. Like a hundred percent. I don't know how there won't be at some point a counter or some kind of a correction. I pray there will be. There's a wonderment in nature in that. Yeah, of course. Of course. It's very dangerous to be emotionally disconnected from nature. 
what's got your attention right now in wine and in business? In terms of wine and business and like kind of what I'm into now, I would say I'm really impressed by a certain subset of relatively new cats. There's a group of people that are making really, really good wine now. I think that people are, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's coming out of the pandemic. Everybody's kind of been sharpening their sword or something like that. And then things are just more tight. I'm really impressed by this industry, you know, and kind of the level of quality that's coming out. People are really doing great things, you know? Yeah. That is a wonderful and positive note. The idea of the wine industry being in a great space. Shout out to you for leading the way. Michael Cruz, where do we find you on the internet and how can we buy your super coveted wines? <laughs> Cruisewineco.com is the easiest. You can buy stuff there. Instagram is Cruise Wine and Cruise Wine Co. We have, I have my personal one and everything else. You can sign up for Ultramarine if you want to wait for, I don't know, three years now or whatever it is. Yeah, get put on a three-year wait list. Yes, I don't know. I feel like an ass talking about that. But if you want to, ultramarinewines.com, go on there too. <laughs> Casual flex. Love it. Thank you for making <laughs> time, bro. Thank you. Really appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Steven Satterfield Show. You can follow us and learn more about the show at Whetstone Media on Instagram, YouTube, and online, whetstonemedia.com. That's W-H-E-T-S-T-O-N-E media.com. We'll be back next week. Peace.